All right, we're recording, and now we have another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations, or HTI, podcast. And hello, everybody. This is Krista Basara, your host yet again. And so what today what I'm going to be looking at is the role of Canadian forces and the roles that they played in the Pacific theater of World War II. Uh, so, of course, the European theater is much more... That's where most of the Canadian forces were, but there was a bit of a role in the Pacific as well. Uh, so we're going to be doing a, a little bit of a look into that, but we're, we're going to be doing more of a survey. It's going to be a very broad, uh, some very broad strokes painted here, but it, it will hopefully give us a, a sense of the Canadian efforts there. And uh, But before we go that, we I just wanted to give this uh, little message about my PayPal or Patreon, not PayPal, uh, Patreon account, and we'll get right back into it. Hello listeners, thank you so much for listening to this podcast and I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the historical thoughts and interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you'd like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com slash historical thoughts. And again, that's patron.podbean slash historical thoughts. Now, let's get back to the episode. The Allies' Pacific War against Japan was largely an American burden. After the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, America fought battle after battle on places such as Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, Peleliu, and Okinawa, <clears throat> and many other islands and many other places against the Empire of the Rising Sun. America finally helped end the war by dropping two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. However, countries other than the United States also fought against the Empire of Japan. In the 1930s, Japan invaded Manchuria, starting a long struggle between the Chinese and the Japanese. The Soviet Union also had a brief military encounter with the Japanese at Kaukulun Gol, and also the British Commonwealth had fought pitched battles with the Japanese in places such as Hong Kong, Singapore, and Australia. And the Soviet Union finally also had another military engagement against the Japanese, this time after a declaration of war, charging into Manchuria and also seizing the Japanese Kuril and Sakhalin Islands. Canada's role in World War II is notable, and this is again what we'll be talking about today. Canada's role in Europe is much better known, and this makes sense because that is where the concentration of Canadian forces were at the time. They helped invade the invade D-Day, they helped invade Italy as well, and they also helped liberate Holland. The Pacific Theater was less eventful for Canada, but all was not quiet on that front. Canada had declared war on Japan almost immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. But since the War Measures Act was proclaimed in 1939, when the war against Germany was starting, Canada had started to see had seen Japan as a potential threat. As World War II continued, Canada did eventually prove herself a valuable ally of the, of the Americans against the Japanese, even if Canada's contributions were 
somewhat smaller, certainly compared to the American effort in the Pacific, but perhaps to those of other allies as well. A problem surfaced with Canada's declaration war of war against Japan in 1941. How would Canada fight this new enemy? And Canada was already mobilized in the war against Germany and Italy, and Ottawa ultimately decided to beat the Europe these European enemies first. But many Canadians felt threatened by the Japanese menace. Even Billy Mitchell, a U.S. general, said that America could be in for it, quote-unquote, if the Japanese conquered Alaska and Western Canada. In the West, there was a genuine fear of invasion, according to historians K.S. Coates and W.R. Morrison. Japan was, quote, uncomfortably close for Canadians in the Western province of British Columbia, and some feared enemy attack. Calls were made for conscription, stronger coastal defenses, and people wanted Japanese Canadians to be taken away from the coast. And this is an introduction to a dark part of Canadian history, the internment of Japanese Canadians in camps. This happened in America too, but it was also happening in Canada, and we'll be talking a little bit about this later on in the podcast. In the early stages of World War II, the initiative was in the hands of the Axis. Nazi Germany was very strong and its blitzkrieg was charging across Europe, but Japan was also making gains in the Pacific. And fears over Japan, fears uh, regarding Japan increased when France fell to Germany, allowing Japan to take the French colony of Indochina, modern-day Vietnam. Even before Pearl Harbor, America had established defenses in Alaska, noticing Japan's increased aggression in Asia. And Canada had been planning for the West Coast defense since the 1920s. To plan the defense of North America, the U.S. and Canada even created a, uh, a body called the Permanent Joint Board on Defense in 1940. Canada's first fight against Japan happened in Hong Kong, which had been a British colony since the 1800s. Europeans living in Hong Kong did not expect the Japanese to attack because they saw the war raging in Europe, but people were thinking that just because there's fighting in Europe doesn't mean that the war would happen, happen here in Hong Kong. And people thought that tensions would with Japan would soon disappear harmlessly. And Hong Kong residents reassured themselves with the prospect of reinforcements coming from Singapore, the main British air and naval base in the area. And pillboxes and fortifications watched over the colony, but for some time, the British did not want to reinforce Hong Kong. Singapore was far away, and it was also, and Hong Kong was also close to Japanese troops stationed in China. So because of these factors, it was thought that Hong Kong would fall quickly, and so it was thought that if we try to reinforce the men already stationed there, it would, it would come, be all for naught. As the Japanese attacked Indochina, however, the British changed their minds. In September 1941, Britain asked Canada to reinforce the Hong Kong garrison, and Canada consented by sending two battalions. But these unpracticed soldiers were not necessarily ready for the oncoming Japanese attack. While Canada reinforced Hong Kong, Japan prepared, out for, all, prepared for all out war. On December 1st, 1941, Japanese forces received war plans against the United States and the British Empire. These plans were put into action a week later, with Japanese troops attacking Hong Kong on December 8th, a day after the Pearl Harbor raid. Unlike the Canadians, the Japanese troops were experienced and battle-hardened. 
They also had artillery and air support. By Christmas Day, the incohesive and undermanned allies had to surrender Hong Kong to the Japanese. And some believe that Canadian troops had been sent to Hong Kong as part of a foolhardy mission to try and save the colony. After all, the Japanese forces were more experienced, they were better equipped, so, and the Canadian troops were inexperienced. Not incompetent, but they weren't very experienced as the Japanese were. But David Berkeson says that when the Canadians were sent, at that time, he says, quote, that, he, he says, quote, war in the Pacific was not yet inevitable. At the time, Japan was still trying to negotiate with America, and they didn't definitely decide to attack Pearl Harbor until November. So Berkeson would say that sending troops to Hong Kong to defend it may not have been so foolhardy after all, according to the perception that was, that was available at the time. So that's the first engagement between Canadians and Japanese at Hong Kong. But war also visited North America in some ways. Stan Cohen says that an overland route to Alaska had been dreamed of long before World War II. And so this is the start of the Alaska Highway. And this is actually one podcast episode I hope to do in a much greater detail. But um, before the war, Canada's Northwest had pleaded for help in developing its isolated economy. And a road was considered the best way to encourage growth by facilitating trade and supply access. And it happens to be that I, I grew up in uh, northeastern BC, so that in, in northwest, northeastern British Columbia, which is part of uh, northwest Canada. And I happened to grow up about, about an hour and a half drive from the what is called Mile Zero in Dawson Creek, British Columbia, of the Alaska Highway. And so that area, it, it is fairly remote. Um, you're not deep in the boonies, as they would say, uh, in places like around Chetwin, Fort St. John, and so on. But there are some areas that are quite remote. There are, some, there are thick forests, mountains, uh, and uh, lots of valleys and everything. So having a good road there is, is a good idea. So there was this idea of creating a road in northwestern Canada to, to help um, connect people to other economies and so on and stimulate growth. But Pearl Harbor made this highway an urgent military project. America was worried that if the west coast was struck, supplies could not reach Alaska. The Americans insisted on building such a road, which would start at Dawson Creek and end at Fairbanks, Alaska. Canada did not see the need for such a project at the time, yet Canada's consent was needed because the road would go through Canadian territory. Canada eventually followed along, putting aside immigration rules and import duties while giving the Americans the right of way. But Canada did insist that, Can that America pay for the construction and Canadian portions of the road also had to be given to Canada after the war was over. These terms were agreed to on March 18, 1942, and this was done in silence so that the planned road could be kept a secret from the enemy. American workers arrived in Dawson Creek later in March. Locals were used as guides and mule teams supplied surveillers. Extreme temperatures, bad terrain, and insects made the work difficult. If you've spent uh, summer in in uh, the woods in BC, yeah, you get bad mosquitoes and you know again mountains and extreme temperatures. Yeah, minus uh, minus twenty, minus thirty in the winter time. Yeah, oh nice. 
The 154-mile highway was finally finished by October 1943, and it cost over $135 million. But by the time the road was finished, the war had turned in the favor of the Allies. Its original purpose to move supply, or its original wartime purpose to move supplies within North America towards Alaska, towards the possible North American Western Front, was no longer as important. And American soldiers gradually left Canadian soil by 19, and by 1946, Canada was given its portions of the highway. And just kind of adding on to this personal experience, as I just mentioned, I grew up near Mile Zero in Dawson Creek. But if you go to Watson Lake, Yukon, you can go you can go on the highway, you can do the whole thing all the way from Dawson Creek all the way to Fairbanks. And it's kind of a bucket list item of mine, actually, to drive the whole thing. But I have been up to Watson Lake uh, in the Yukon, which is just north of the British Columbia and Yukon border. And what there is, there's something called the Signpost Forest. And so this was started when, you know, there were homesick uh, engineers and army army people there. Uh, they put up signposts, you know, saying, you know, home is here, that San Francisco is here, or and, and such signs like that. And eventually it became a tradition. So you you have this area in in the town, and you there's just signposts everywhere. You know, signposts from Europe. Um, you know, there's a stop sign from somewhere else, and and um, Otomo, Iowa is represented there, you know, all these places. And so people, tourists come by and come and, and put up a put up a signpost. Hopefully they're not the stolen ones but on the side of the road. <laughs> but that's uh, that's an interesting tradition that that also was um that was started during that time. And also, this is another podcast episode I hope to do as well. In Canada there were various air bases along along the route, uh, along the route up to Alaska as well. So it was kind of a two parallel projects. There was the Alaska Highway, and then there was something called the Northwest Staging Route. So that's what these air bases are. And these were air bases that were sending aircraft all the way to uh, the Soviet Union. And under the Lend-Lease Agreement, the Soviet Union received American uh, military equipment such as uh, P-39 Air Cobras, uh, P-47 Thunderbolts, and uh, other and A-20s, other kinds of um, military aircraft for their war against Nazi Germany. So what the Northwest staging route was, was air bases placed at various points so that the planes could fly from the United States and go land at these air bases, refuel, come back, go up again, and then eventually go up to Alaska and then fly across the Bering Strait into Eastern, what it, the Eastern Soviet Union, Eastern Russia, and then eventually be carted off to be used. Uh, so that's another parallel project. So that it's not really related to the Pacific, but I figure it was worth mentioning that that project when talking about the Alaska Highway. So now let's just move a little bit towards the Alaskan War. On June third, on June third and fourth, nineteen forty-two. While the Battle of Midway was happening between American, the American and Japanese navies, the Japanese also launched two air raids on Dutch Harbor, Alaska. But due to American intelligence and bad, bad weather, the raiders only killed 78 American troops and shot down 14 aircraft. But a few days later, the Japanese did take Kiska and Atu, and they are two islands in the Alaskan Aleutian chain. 
And there's debate on whether or not the attack on Alaska was diversionary. Berkeson says that it was meant to draw the Americans away from Midway. He says the Japanese had no plans to work their way up the Aleutian chain towards the mainland. But Walter Lord suggests that the Aleutian attack was not diversionary. He says that the Japanese really took the Aleutian to prevent American airstrikes against Japan itself. And the Doolittle raid with, was, uh, remember uh, Doolittle, who I mentioned briefly before, he performed a raid against Tokyo with some B-25 bombers on April 18th. And the, the raid wasn't devastating, but it caused some Japanese to panic. They thought the raid had come from the Aleutian Islands when it really came from an aircraft carrier. And so this caused the Japanese to think that they looked towards the, Aleut the Aleutians as, as a way if we take the Aleutians, we can cut off any kind of future raids. So Lord, continuing his argument against the idea that the, Atu, the seizing Atu and Kiska was simply a diversion away from Midway, Lord asks, if the Japanese really wanted to trap the American fleet into a decisive naval engagement at Midway, why use any diversion at all? And Stan Cohen suggests that the Japanese took Atu and Kiska to break supply lines between the, so the United States and the Soviet Union. And finally, we shouldn't forget too that the Aleutians were also American territory. They were small and not valuable, but perhaps there was some compensation in taking those two small islands for Japan's tremendous loss at Midway. But Midway was a disaster for the Japanese and it was a turning point for the war. So I think the Japanese planner, military planners at the time would have preferred <laughs> to have won Midway rather than, uh, than those two islands. And you can uh, listen about this. I go into the battle of, battles for Atu and Kiska uh, in much greater detail in a separate podcast episode. Uh, go back to episode 7 and I talk a little bit more about that. So regardless of the Japanese reasons for taking the Aleutian Islands, the Allies decided to take back, take back occupied Kiska and Atu. It had bothered Pacific Canadians, Pacific Coast Canadians and Americans to have the enemy right on their doorstep. And joint American-Canadian planning began on June 24th. The Canadian Army, uh, Canadian Navy offered to escort troop convoys. And the Navy's offer was riddled with controversy because the Canadian government had received very short notice of this commitment. Regardless, five Canadian ships were given to the Aleutian campaign. The Canadian ships were grouped into Force D placed under the command of American Task Force 8, Force D landed U.S. troops on ADAC, which was an island chosen as a forward base. The Canadian ships then ran, ra ran around the clock, escorting convoys and carrying men and equipment to ADAC. On September 12th, Canadian ships l dropped depth charges near a possible enemy submarine, but other than that, Force D had no definite enemy contact. After suffering harsh maritime weather, and supply shortages, Force D left the Aleutians on October 30th. The Canadians re did return twice, however, to replace weather-damaged American escorts to protect the Kiska-bound convoy. After that, the Canadian, Canadian Navy did not return to Alaska for the rest of the war. And the actual battle on Atu was an American affair. Americans had landed there on May 12, 1943. 
Until the 29th, they fought against 2,500 Japanese troops. The Japanese were slaughtered in that battle, left to endure a, quote, honorable death, as the Japanese government called it. And this, this defeat of the Japanese troops included a bonsai charge um, at, at the end of the battle. Unlike in the case of Atu, Canadian troops were prepared for an invasion of Kiska in response to American requests for aid. The Allies landed a 34,000-man force, which included 4,800 Canadians, on Kiska on August 15, 1943. But no enemy was to be found, for the Japanese had managed to escape through American patrols thanks to the fog. However, there were some casualties, however, through friendly fire and booby traps left by the Japanese. The Canadian troops stayed on Kiska for three months before returning home. And the Royal Canadian Air, For Air Force, the RCAF, also helped to liberate the Aleutian Islands. During the Alaskan campaign, the Americans had too few aircraft, and the RCAF was helped to uh, was asked to bolster these numbers. Canadian pilots ran patrol flights over southeastern Alaska and the British Columbian coast from their base at Kodiak Island. Due to tardy planning, the Canadian Air, uh, Air Force did not participate in the Battle of Atu, but it did, did, it did bomb Japanese positions on Kiska during 60 sorties. Now let's switch gears to the Royal Canadian Navy, or the RCN. The Canadian Navy was more active in the Atlantic, which was, of course, connected with the European theater, where most of the Canadian effort was, was pushed. And German naval, the German naval threat was seen as more concerning because of U-boat bases in France and also because of uh, German submarine attacks on Allied merchant ships. And U-boats even attacked shipping in Canadian waters as far as the St. Lawrence River. Naval attack from Japan was not a major concern, and even when war with Japan started, Canadian Pacific shipping was relatively safe. But some, such as General A.G.L. McNaughton, the chief of the general staff, still considered, still chose not to ignore Japan's naval threat. The Permanent Joint Board on Defense discussed defense plans in 1940 to 1941. After Pearl Harbor, the Navy's Pacific assets were gradually increased. New ships were added to the RCN's Pacific Fleet, replacing obsolete ones. Until the Aleutian Campaign, the Pacific Fleet stayed in home waters, however, defending British Columbia's sea routes and inshore waters. While it did move U.S. troops to Alaska, the Navy mostly watched over choke points such as the Hecate and Juan de Fuca Straits in British Columbia. RCAF patrols and radar complemented naval reconnaissance. When large warships or other important vessels passed through a patrol area, both Canadian and American ships searched for Japanese submarines. Sub-attacks were a concern, especially considering the damage that the German U-boats had been causing on the eastern seaboard. But Japanese subs were mostly used for reconnaissance, because Japanese naval doctrine favored decisive battles, not prolonged commercial, commercial disruption. In fact, collision during night patrols proved more dangerous than Japanese attack. And so here's an example of total war, so to speak, the involvement of all of society in warfare. And the Fisherman's Naval Reserve, or the FNR, was formed shortly before the war started. It was, the FNR was formed in 1938. 
what the FNR was, it was a group of volunteers meant to protect Canada against Japanese-Canadian fishermen acting as spies or saboteurs. It was also feared that the Japanese-Canadian boats would be used as enemy reconnaissance and landing ships. And the reserve was used to show British Columbians that the government was doing its utmost to protect them. So it was kind of a, a home guard idea. And uh, considering the sometimes the often racist policies of the day, only white fishermen could join the FNR. And the, uh, but they, they enjoyed a special identity in a way, being allowed different dress from, quote, regular servicemen. And the Navy chartered each boat uh, partaking in, in the FNR, uh, a monthly pay rate, and they also gave reservists weapons and minesweeping equipment, and cooks were even supplied to prepare meals. And some reservists even reportedly fished while patrolling. And so they, while they're acting as watchmen for the uh, Canadian coast, they were acting as watchmen and, and patrols, uh, patrolmen for the Japanese submarines. And in June 1942, there actually was an attack on Pond Canada. More than 20 Japanese subs were sent to North America's west coast in preparation for the Midway and Aleutian attacks. They were to recon reconnoiter the area, but two submarines, the I-25 and the I-26, attacked some Allied freighters. On June 20th, I-26 attacked uh, a lighthouse with some light artillery at Estevan Point, British Columbia. But aside from apparently scaring some pigs and disrupting a, uh, a game of bridge, the I-26 did little damage. This was the first foreign attack that Canada suffered since the Fenian raids of the previous century. And uh, the I-25 also carried out a similar raid near Astoria, Oregon. And the, these two subs did damage one merchant ship and they also even sank another. But the Royal Canadian Navy didn't panic and did not divert patrols away from the crucial straits that they were guarding. Unprotected areas were vulnerable only to small, ineffective strikes, like I-26's raid. By early 1943, the Japanese were clearly on the defensive. The RCN's Pacific patrol duties became less urgent, therefore. Forward bases were not required anymore, and the Pacific fleet shifted to training. And it was at this time that the FNR patrols were discontinued. And so, uh, speaking of the Navy, there's also the, H the case of the HMCS Uganda, which was a light cruiser transferred from the British Navy to the RCN in October 1944. By now, the Atlantic Naval War had slowed down, and by April 1945, the Uganda rendezvoused with the British Naval Task Force in the Western Pacific. This group proceeded to attack the Japanese home islands, and the Uganda supported this, attack, this action by bombarding the Sakashina Islands. And it also provided anti-aircraft cover for the British carriers for HMS Formidable and HMS Victorious. Interestingly, the, 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 Uganda's, the Uganda's case is unique because it had a crew of 700 men, and it was actually able to vote whether or not they wanted to stay in the war. The Canadian government wanted only volunteers to serve in the Pacific. And on July 28, 1945, about 80% of the crew voted no to volunteering, and the ship returned home. Chinese Canadians also played a role in the war against the Pacific. Some had escaped the Japanese um, 
takeover of Hong Kong. And also, many Chinese Canadians volunteered to fly with the RCAF. Uh, before ni October 1942, only men of, quote, pure European descent were able to join the Air Force. Um, but eventually, from a, from a base in Dinjan, India, Chinese Canadian pilots flew supplies to Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Army, which, along with the with Mao Zedong's uh, communist forces, were fighting against the Japanese in China. And some of them saw this as a as a some of the pilots saw this duty as a way of assisting relatives still living in China, and they also flew Chinese soldiers to India for combat training. Also, the Canadian Army Intelligence Corps operated the S-20 Japanese Language School. Some graduates were Chinese Canadians, but 56 were even of Japanese descent. And some of these graduates were sent to the British Army to act as translators in Burma, which was a campaign as part of, part of the Pacific Theater. Others worked in the number one discrimination unit, which translated intercepted Japanese communications and sent them off to Ottawa and Washington. Sergeant K. Chi Lo and S. J. Chin, S. J. Chin, for example, testified at Japanese war crime tribunals because of the enemy documents that they translated. So now I briefly mentioned Japanese internment and we'll, we'll talk just a little bit more about it as well. The War Measures Act was passed in 1914, the initially during World War I, and it was reintroduced in 1939. The act stated thus, when conclusive evidence of war, invasion, or insurrection, real or apprehended exists, the governor in council shall have the power to do and authorize such things as he may by reason for the security of Canada. All resolutions passed under the act had the force of law. The government would not only have power over censorship and trade, but it could also make policy on arrest, detention, exclusion, and deportation, according to the Act. It could also appropriate, control, and forfeit and dispose of property and the use thereof. Under the War Measures Act, the Canadian government deported some Japanese to Japan after the war's end, but it also gave Canada the quote-unquote right to take Japanese Canadians' property and intern them even women and children. 22,000 Japanese Canadians would be removed from their homes on the West Coast under the War Measures Act. Any, any Japanese Canadian could be a victim of such pre uh, prejudice even if he or she had no military experience. Some in the Canadian Navy feared that Japanese officers were pretending to be West Coast fishermen, and the previously mentioned Fisherman's Naval Reserve, or FNR, seized the boats of many Japanese Canadians fishers, and this was sometimes done without real evidence or reason to search the fishing boats. And even when the fishermen offered to give their boats to the Canadian government, their loyalty was sometimes doubted. So it, it's certainly true that during war, certain actions, certain measures should be taken, like curfews and and such things like this. But it is it is a dark part in our our history, the treatment of Japanese Canadians during the war with with Japan. And this is certainly not unique to Canada. The United States had had similar similar actions as well. They also interned Japanese Americans. And and also Canada has some history with this too. During World War One, under the War Measures Act, very similar actions were taken uh, against 
uh, Ukrainians, for example, who at that point you the what is now Ukraine was part of the Austro-Hungarian Hungarian Empire, and there were many Ukrainians living in Canada at the time for the past twenty years. The lot many Ukrainians had been moving uh, to Canada to start 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 farms and and settle the settle Western Canada, and so unfortunately. A lot of these Ukrainians were also interned in such camps similar to the, the Japanese in World War II. Uh, such camps were found in, in Jasper, even. So that's that's always the thing, you know, when a country's at war with another, dealing with citizens of the country you're war with, at war with, or at least people of that ethnicity, that's always a question. Like, in modern, in modern Ukraine and right now, with their... Their battle dealing with uh, Russian-backed separatists in the east over the last few years, there have been, um, there have been, there's been crackdown on on journalists as well, and also restricting restricting language, legislating uh, legislating Ukrainian language, and at the expense of other languages, and it's not just Russian as well. You know, there's also is the European. European uh, countries have expressed concern about suppressing other minority languages in in Ukraine as well, uh, such as Hungarian and and Romanian. So this is always the difficult thing when when countries are at war. What's the relationship with war and human rights? It's always always a difficult question. Not always not always easy to to do. But sometimes in um, Sometimes even countries like Canada, which has a reputation of being a very, very good country, um, you know, all countries make make mistakes um, uh, during times of during times of crisis, and this is no exception. So now, getting getting towards the end, when Nazi Germany surrendered on May eighth, nineteen forty five, Canada's focus inevitably shifted towards Japan's final defeat. In addition to the previously mentioned HMCS Uganda, Canada was going to put more ships into the Pacific for the final battle. Canada was looking to send some, uh, according to Berkison, Canada was looking to send some 60 ships, including two light fleet, carrier, fl fleet carriers, two cruisers, and a large number of escort vessels. Eight squadrons of bombers would also support the final effort. A 6th Canadian Infantry Division, 39,000 men, would also be deployed using American equipment and organization. Canada's planned invasion of Japan never came to fruition thanks to the Americans dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Pacific War and World War II ended on August 15th with Japan's formal surrender. And one last story must be noted. This is the story of Lieutenant Robert Hampton Hammy Gray, who was a native of Nelson, British Columbia. Gray is described as a, quote, 27-year-old, steel-nerved, crap-playing man. He flew a Corsair fighter with the British Royal Navy from the HMS Formidable. On August 9th, Gray led an attack on Japanese shipping in Onawaga Bay, Honshu, Japan. Under intense anti-air fire, he, he attacked a destroyer, dropped his bombs even after the enemy guns had set his aircraft ablaze. The destroyer was hit and sunk, but Gray was killed, and he was offered, honored with a posthumous, posthumous Victoria Cross. And this is one of the last engagements of the war. Participating in that attack was also Lieutenant G. Anderson, 
and he also died when his damaged Corsair crashed on the HMS Formidable. And he was the last uh, Royal Canadian Navy casualty of World War II. Canada's Pacific contributions were not as large as her European efforts. But these efforts still demanded the best from naval crews, Air Force pilots, and translators. Canada's work in the Aleutians was also convenient politically. Greg Donaghy and, and Patricia Ray say that it provided, quote, the government with ammunition when the question of Canada's contribution to North American defense came to the fore. The exploits of pilots like Lieutenant Gray show that Canadians were able to make the ultimate sacrifice for the defense of their country in the Pacific theater. And of course, the defenders of Hong Kong did the same. The Pacific War also gave Canada opportunities to build bridges with allies and citizens. In Alaska, Canadian and American forces uh, worked together and fought together under one command. And also, it uh, gave them the chance to build the Alaska Highway, which was a, uh, a, an example of cooperation between Canada and the United States. And nowadays, most of the Alaska Highway is in Canadian hands, uh, being in British Columbia and the Yukon Territory. And it's a, I get it could be a big of a bit of a tourist trap now, uh, because it it allows travel uh, through beautiful country and so on, and also and of course it allows supplies to go into remote remote more remote towns and places such as such as Watson Lake Yukon. Um, so it's very interesting when you look at the history of something like the Alaska Highway and say this was because of the war worries in the Pacific. And uh, like I say, the Alaska Highway is one of my planned um, future podcast episodes, and I'm looking forward to during the work, doing the work on that. And so that's the end of the episode for today. So I would like to thank you very much for listening, and uh, keep on listening. Keep your ears peeled for uh, <laughs> ears peeled, ears tuned uh, for more episodes on the HTI podcast. Uh, I'm really enjoying working on these podcast episodes, as I've said many times before. Uh, if you would like to uh, donate, please contribute to my Patreon account, my Patreon page, and we will talk to you next time, and have a great one.